service. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about my Tacovas cowboy boots. I picked them up while I was in Austin, Texas. I had this event I had to go to that night. It was a formal thing. I had this idea of what I was going to wear, but I needed the one extra thing. And I was like, aha, Tacovas. There's a Tacovas here in Austin. The dudes who worked at the store were great. I found the exact boot I was looking for. This boot is called the Dylan. I got it in midnight black. I wore them to this formal event. I had on a suit. And then tonight, I'm going to wear them with jeans to my son's baseball game. These things are amazing cowboy boots. They're super comfortable, and I can tell already that they're going to last for a long time. A couple things you can do here to check out Tacovis. If you can, stop by your local Tacovis store. Have a complimentary drink or two. The experience is awesome. You can shop all the new styles. You're going to smell that fresh leather in the store. The friendly staff are going to be at your service. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you feel like a rock star. A lot of the Tacovis stores have these leather custom branding services to make your boots truly personalized. They put on regular live music and events. It's an awesome in-store experience. So if you have the opportunity to check out a Tacova store, I highly recommend it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges. And they ship right to your door. Go to tacovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Wu-Tang Clan's ghost-faced killer are insane. He shot up someone's house while smoking wet. That's a joint dipped in angel dust and embalming fluid. And he was busted with an unlicensed 357 Magnum, hollow point bullets, and a bulletproof vest during a routine traffic stop. He allegedly tried to steal $3,000 from a parking lot attendant. And that particular offense got him sent to Rikers Island after he copped a plea for attempted robbery. And all of his real-life experiences on the street have informed his music, great music, some of the most lyrically dense stories ever put to tape, both as a member of the Wu-Tang Clan and as a solo artist. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Theatrical Neoclassical. MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Candle in the Wind 1997 by Elton John. And why would I play you that specific slice of Marilyn Monroe slash Princess Die tribute cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on November 22, 1997. And that was the day that the manager of a hip-hop group in Ohio was shot dead. A shooting that resulted in unexpected yet serious ramifications for Ghostface Killa and the entire Wu-Tang Clan. On this episode, Smoking Wet, 
an unlicensed 357 Magnum, attempted robbery, a plea deal, and Wu-Tang Clan's ghost face killer. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Tony was pissed. He just wanted to go home, but he couldn't. All four of his car's tires had been slashed while he and Frank were in the club. Hour, maybe hour and a half, not that long, and now this. This was bullshit. Tony was bullshit. Frank was stunned, standing there with his mouth wide open, frozen. Tony motioned to the parking attendants nearby. These guys must have seen something. Frank agreed, but just because they saw something didn't mean they were going to say something. They didn't need to talk, Tony said. He had a better idea. You know how much cash comes through here in a single evening? Let's go see what they got. Frank wanted to know if he should put his hood up. Tony said, probably not a bad idea. And what about the burner, Frank asked. Tony said, have it ready, but keep it hidden and keep the safety off. The attendants were as chatty as expected, which is to say, not at all. Tony cut to the chase. Where's the money? No response. He asked again. Nothing. Tony zeroed in on one attendant. Skinny, weak. Look at my car, Tony said to him. Look at what they did to my car. They did that to my car while it was parked in your lot, on your watch. And the kid got real nervous. He was shaking, trying to speak, but stuttering. Frank put his hand near his cannon to let the kid know something was under there. Tony barked. The cash, motherfucker, give us the cash and we'll forget about the whole thing. We'll walk away and leave you alone. Kid was as weak as Tony thought. He followed the instructions, opened the cash box at the attendant stand. Tony looked inside. Benjamin Franklin's stone gaze stared up at him from a stack of bills. A couple thousand in there, at least. And this made Tony happy. This made things even. Ghostface Killer, the man born Dennis Coles, was one of Wu-Tang Clan's sharpest lyricists. Ghost, AKA Dennis here, was a storyteller, a raconteur. Born in 1970 on Staten Island, and now in 1997, 27 years old, Ghost knew a good yarn when he heard one. In his opinion, that's what he was hearing now. A good yarn, one hell of a story. Nothing more, nothing less. The DA disagreed. The DA said it was a true story, and that in this true story, the character of Tony was actually a stand-in for Ghostface. The ghost was the one who found his car tire slashed outside the Palladium nightclub in Manhattan. That, in a fit of rage, Ghost got into it with the parking lot attendants. One of those attendants went on the record with a statement that Ghost nearly made off with 3K from their cash box. Now, Ghost was looking at five to 15 for robbery. Unless, that is. He copped a plea to a lesser charge, attempted robbery. That would get him a couple months in the pen and five years probation. Either way, the DA had him by the balls. Just like the NYPD had him by the balls a few weeks prior in Harlem. Ghost was driving. His friend was driving his own car directly ahead. 
A police cruiser sandwiched its way between the two cars and pulled Ghost's friend over for some bogus traffic violation. So Ghost pulled over too. He watched the cops approach his friend's car. In Ghost's mind, NYPD lived for this. Not protecting, not serving, harassing. Ghost was out of his car now, making his approach. The cops at the scene said it was at this time that Ghostface began acting disorderly. Between that and the fact that he could clearly make out the bulletproof vest under his coat, the cops had probable cause. And they searched Ghost's car, found his unlicensed 357 Magnum and hollow point bullets in a hidden compartment behind the glove box. And that was a careless mistake. Maybe it was hubris. Maybe he thought that because he was somebody now, a member of one of the biggest hip hop groups in the world, that he was somehow above the law. And if so, then he was wrong. Third degree criminal possession of a weapon was a felony. It didn't matter who you were. Ditto for the body armor. Worst of all, getting pinched in Harlem was what alerted authorities to the fact that Ghostface had skipped the court date on this whole Palladium parking lot bullshit. The charge he was fighting now. And to think, 1997 had held so much promise. The year started on a high, with Ghost riding the success of his first solo album, Iron Man, released in October of the year prior on Epic Records. It debuted at number two on the Billboard 200 and quickly went gold. Then on June 3rd, Wu-Tang Clan dropped their long-awaited second album, the one they were recording out in Los Angeles when the notorious B.I.G. was shot dead in the street. Wu-Tang Forever was bold. Double LP, 27 tracks, it was a massive success. The line of people at Virgin Records in New York City on release day stretched for blocks. Over 600,000 copies sold in the first week alone. It debuted at number one in the US and in the UK. This was year five of the RZA's five-year plan, by the way. Just as RZA promised, Wu-Tang went all the way to the top. Days after the album's release, however, Wu-Tang was banned from one of the biggest hip-hop radio stations in the country. Hot 97's annual Summer Jam concert should have been a victory lap. But when the station threatened to pull Wu-Tang's music from the airways if they didn't perform a headlining set, an appearance which was promotional in nature and thus did not pay, it felt a little like extortion. Wu-Tang went ahead and played the show, and they closed out the night with incredible energy and cool to spare. And they also had a very clear message for the tens of thousands of people in attendance. A message which was delivered off the cuff by Ghostface with no warning. And that message was, I want every motherfucker in here to say, Fuck Hot 97. With their music no longer allowed on one of the biggest hip-hop radio stations in the country, Wu-Tang then hit the road. Their joint tour with Rage Against the Machine was the hottest ticket of the summer of 1997. It was also an opportunity to greatly expand Wu-Tang's audience. Black, white, male, female, high school kids, college kids, rock fans, rap fans, it didn't matter. Everyone was down with Wu-Tang, but Wu-Tang wasn't down with touring, real touring anyways, touring like a rock band. That was hard, and there were schedules to keep, call times to make, endless protocols and rules. Ghost and Wu-Tang didn't do rules. So at the height of this huge cultural moment, one of the biggest records of the year, one of the biggest tours of the year, courting headline controversy like only the greatest artists can do, 
Wu-Tang bailed and went home. Ghost, for one, struggled. Not because he told Hot 97 to fuck off, and not because his group abandoned rage. Wu-Tang was formed against the odds and they flourished against the odds. Professional odds would always be there. Ghost's problem was personal. His diabetes was getting worse. It made him dizzy, blurred his vision, gave him migraines so bad it felt like his head was gonna split into two. Felt like everything inside, the dense, overgrown language and the art of storytelling, the things that were his bread and butter as an MC, that they would all pour out of that cracked dome and spill all over the floor. His drinking and smoking, it wasn't helping. PCP in particular was a favorite, but it made the dizziness and the paranoia even worse. He was still looking behind his back, even from the vantage point of some of the biggest stages in the world. He was the guy from the Stapleton Projects. He did live that life and he did represent that culture. He was authentic. Being authentic was about being real, which is not the same as saying it was the truth. Ghostface Killer was a character, part truth, part fiction. The truth gave credence to the made up stuff and fiction went a long way when the truth got stale. Back when Wu-Tang first started, Ghostface wore a stocking mask at their public appearances, but why? Depended on who you asked. There was a warrant out for his arrest or there was a bounty on his head from a rival crew. These were stories. Stories like the one about Tony and Frank trying to rob some dudes in a nightclub parking lot. Were they true? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe go fuck yourself. The DA didn't care for Ghostface's cavalier attitude. In a sense, his authenticity was his worst enemy. The parking lot story was one that he couldn't write himself out of, so he took the plea deal. Five years probation after he did four months at Rikers Island. Ghost figured it was fodder for another good story. A story about coming out right. And how, in the end, you gotta go through hell to come out right. Everyone does. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership in an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But 
Maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. The first bullet hit his neck. The next one caught him in the shoulder. It all happened so fast. Blood spurted from his wounds. His neck went numb with shock. He screamed and threw his arms up. Pure reflex. He grabbed the dude's piece and tried to wrestle it from his grip. Again, reflex. The knuckles cracked as he turned the barrel around and aimed it back at the guy who had just clipped him. He managed to wrap his finger around the trigger, and then he fired. He shot a guy with his own gun. When the smoke cleared, he got the hell out of Ohio. Steubenville was a shit show, birthplace of Dean Martin and Jimmy the Greek, a grid of steel mills and coal mines, and now, in 1991, the place where Ghostface Killa, then still known as Dennis Coles, then only 21 years old, got shot. He went back to New York before things got really bad. And Dennis's guy, Bobby, AKA the RZA, he could vouch for the really bad shit. The cycle of non-success was a tough one to break. It was a cycle that had been spinning since the day guys like Dennis were born. A cycle of little opportunity and even less support homes broken far beyond repair. There was a reason the projects in Staten Island were set up the way they were. They kept everyone inside, like caged animals. And the only way out was to claw your way to something better. Sometimes that meant squeezing a trigger. And when the RZA formed Wu-Tang Clan, those lies and that culture and that fight or flight mentality all became a part of the mythology, the new thing they were creating. They rearranged the world as they knew it. Staten Island wasn't just Staten Island anymore. It was Shaolin, a place that was partly true and partly made up. The stuff that was 100% true, all that happened long before RZA assembled Wu-Tang and long before Dennis became Ghostface Killa, the hip-hop alter ego named after the villain from one of the clan's cherished kung fu movies. It happened in the Stapleton Houses project on Staten Island in the 70s. 15 family members squeezed into a three-bedroom apartment, four bodies to a mattress, cereal for breakfast in the morning after you picked the roaches out of the box, the sounds of the Delphonics and the temptations on the radio to tuck you in at night. Dennis's father was gone, his mom was it. The mom was overwhelmed and she hit the bottle to cope. Dennis helped out however he could. As young as 10 years old, he was lifting his two younger brothers, both stricken with MS, onto the toilet. All the while, hoping the toilet paper roll still had a few squares on it. And if it didn't, hoping that there was enough newspaper kicking around to make a half-decent substitute. But let's face it, the newspaper didn't cut it though. Tore your ass up. And the easiest way to escape it all was to smoke your way out. Stapleton's high of choice was weed dipped in angel dust and embalming fluid. Smoking, quote unquote, wet, or getting dusted as it were called produced a high that stretched out not just over time, but into time. The high was time. There was no past and no future when you were dusted. 
only a long drawn out now, a now that takes forever to happen, so long that it doesn't even feel real. Your eyes bug out, you walk slow, but you stumble like you're drunk. Someone else has to steady you, and when they do so, their hand touches your arm and suddenly your mind's racing a million miles an hour. You see and hear things that aren't there. People dead, alive, and your piece of shit father, fuck off. Some hot young thing from around the way. Sup, baby? A cop in plain clothes. Damn. They're all looking at you. They talk to you and you talk back to them. It's all totally normal. Everything is. Every choice makes perfect sense. Whip out your dick and piss inside of a subway car. Strip your clothes off. Flip a razor blade between your fingers like it's a casino chip. Try to lift a car into the air or point a pistol at an old lady's house and shoot. 1992, Staten Island, Park Hill. Ghostface Killer was dusted. A house in front of him wasn't in his neighborhood, in Stapleton. He was standing in rival territory, a gun in his hand. His mind raced with memories, older memories, like the years he took care of his brothers, years spent crammed inside of an apartment with extended family. More recent memories, like getting clipped in Steubenville, nearly a casualty of whatever the hell was going on there. As clear as that particular memory was, however, and as much as he didn't want a replay of that incident, Ghost's mind was not in a good place. It was warped by PCP, and to that warped mind, what he was about to do made complete sense to him. He was going to shoot up the house that belonged to a mother who was the same age as his own mom. It wasn't the mother he was after, it was their son. Dude was hiding out inside after getting into it with Ghost's friend over a drug deal gone bad that had put that friend in jail. This was revenge. This was payback. His motions were slow but deliberate. He raised the piece, took aim, and fired. Bullets ricocheted off brick and pierced glass. To Ghostface, the whole thing felt like an hour. In reality, it was quick work. Just a few seconds and he was tearing ass down the street in a car. He should have known the dusthead vigilantes don't go unpunished. An eye for an eye and all that. And the other guy, the guy Ghost had tried and failed to shoot, didn't wait long to exact his revenge. He drove over to Stapleton that same day, to Ghost's mom's house, and pumped it full of bullets. Putting your own mother in danger has a way of putting everything in perspective. Once the angel dust wore off, that is. Luckily, no one was hurt at either house, but the thought of his mother under fire ate at him from the inside. And there was more. The guy that Ghost went after, the guy who emptied a clip into his mom's house, that guy was super tight with Corey Woods, AKA Raekwon the chef. And Raekwon was, alongside Ghostface, a founding member of the newly assembled Wu-Tang Clan. Whatever this dispute was, it ended now. Time to put away childish things. Time to grow up. Rizzo wasn't just forming a band. He was brokering peace. Wu-Tang was intended to legitimize all nine guys, trade in the street hustle for a music industry hustle. But it wasn't that simple. They didn't make millions overnight. Raekwon and Method Man continued to deal for a little while at the beginning. And Ghost continued to be an ambassador for the culture that continued to fuel many of his crime-obsessed rhymes. He understood that culture, 
how it feels to be left for dead, underestimated, fending for yourself. The very word culture has major significance. Culture is the fourth supreme number, as in supreme mathematics, the building blocks of the 5% nation, AKA the nation of gods and earths. One, you do the knowledge. Two, you act upon what you know. Three, you understand it. And then four, you live it. The culture, the way of life, but not the way of life that you're familiar with. This is a better way of life, a better culture. One that you can only grasp once you are seeing clearly. That kind of culture is freedom. Freedom is what everyone wants. Freedom from harassment. Freedom from repression. Freedom from bad cycles and worse circumstances. But most of all, freedom from the past. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. One of the inmates down the hall was freaking out. You didn't actually have to see him to know he was on the floor. Arms smacking against the concrete. A demonic wheeze coming from his chest. Seizure or asthma attack, hard to tell which. The CEOs didn't pay any mind one way or the other. The CEOs worked double shifts and gave zero fucks. They walked on by every time, and they did what they wanted. And what they wanted was simple. Make life for inmates at Rikers Island a living hell. A CEO wouldn't think twice about tossing tear gas in your face or tossing your ass in solitary or just denying you your basic rights as a human. And no water, no showers, no phone calls, no food. And for Ghostface, no insulin. It was early 1998, January or February. Ghost had lost track of time. He was days or weeks into his four-month sentence for the alleged attempted robbery outside the Palladium. His diabetes was worse now than it had ever been. And the CEOs could care less. They denied him anything that would make his life easier. They denied him his insulin. Without insulin to manage his blood sugar levels, every hour was harder than the one before. He became disoriented. His cell seemed to spin violently. It spun all around him. He was nauseous. A headache raged between his eyes, bore down on him like a dark cloud. And he dropped to his knees. He fell over and steadied himself with his hands, and they tingled. And then he was down, lying still on the cold, slimy concrete of his cell floor. He closed his eyes. The bare floor of the Rikers prison cell was gone. In its place was the bare dirt floor of a village hut. West Africa, the country of Benin, to be precise, where voodoo is the state religion. He was here once, months ago, in real life, looking for an alternative to Western medicine, a cure for his diabetes that didn't involve sticking himself with a needle every day. And now he was here again, inside his own mind. He saw candle wax and palm oil, the blood of a goat and the feathers of a chicken, a group of women assembled in a street, white robes, voices in perfect harmony. The women beat out a rhythm on their chests and the rhythm grew faster. Someone screamed. A figure draped in black, impossibly tall, as tall as three men standing on top of each other's shoulders, burst through the dust that hung in the air. Bad spirits make haste. He suddenly tasted gin in his mouth. Don't swallow it, it's fire water. Spit it once, twice, three times is the ritual. 
Now pray for help, pray for healing. His body shook, beads rattled in the distance. Men in multicolored masks lurked behind him. More blood, more feathers, dehydrated skulls of monkeys and stray cats. And the voices of women became louder, faster, out of sync. Another spray of firewater, another scream, and then... Ghostface woke with the urgent need to piss. His temples were throbbing. There was a drum in his head. The rhythm was strong and loud. Not unlike the rhythms that RZA sampled on his ASR-10. Not unlike the rhythms of Ritual and Benin. Voodoo wasn't a cure-all. Ghost found no magic wand in West Africa for his ailments. But he did find a simpler way of life there. In Benin, no one cared about the label on your shirt or the brand of your shoes. It was the same here at Rikers. In prison, life was reduced to its most elemental state. Some guys fought to survive. Others told stories. Ghost knew he had to hold on. Just a few months longer. He was strong. He'd been through worse. He could sweat it out. Dizzy and nauseous. The headaches giving him fever dreams and tunnel vision. As long as there was light at the end of that tunnel. He just wasn't prepared for what was on the other side. November 22nd, 1997, Steubenville, Ohio. Greer Montgomery, AKA Wise God Allah, manager of the local hip hop group Kill Army, walked briskly along Logan Street on his way to a recording studio. A party was raging at number 635. Nine members of the Steubenville Crips stood outside. The Crips weren't down with Wise God. They all suspected he was a blood. Whether or not he actually was, wasn't important. They thought he was, so that was that. He was a sworn rival. One crip in particular blamed Wise God for robbing his mom. Still, the nine dudes didn't make a move. They just stood there as Wise God made his way. They all gave him a look. It was a look that said, keep walking. So he did. But as he walked, he lifted his shirt to display the 357 concealed there. All nine crips immediately drew their weapons. Wise God went from a stroll to a sprint. The still of the night was shattered by an octet of steel and smoke, the sound of nine guns firing off multiple rounds. And for a few seconds, Wise God dodged the ridiculous hail of bullets. In all, the Crips unloaded over 60 rounds. Most of them missed their target, but it only takes one shot. Wise God was hit once in the head. His body fell to the ground, dead on impact. Months later, Ghostface Killer completed his sentence at Rikers Island and walked out the front door a free man, as free as a man on probation can be. He came out right. He had managed to keep his nose clean on the inside. The only fight he had at Rikers was with his own body. And now he planned to take control of that fight on the outside. No drinking and no smoking, maybe. To start though, less drinking and less smoking. For now, less was something. Less made him feel better. Less headaches, less dizzy spells. Less of the petty shit that consumed everyone on a daily basis. He thought about the people he met in West Africa. They had less, but they seemed happier with less. Less made him focused. The arrest in Harlem, 
The thing at the Palladium, his time in prison, none of that was going to cling to him like an albatross. But yet he held on to these experiences, and they made him tough, like an elephant tusk. They were fuel. And this new stuff, the second solo album he was cooking up, the follow-up to Iron Man, that was going to be killer. The kind of record that ups everyone's game. Ghostface, Wu-Tang, all boats lifted by the rising tide that flowed from the mouth of hell. Ghostface sophomore album, Supreme Clientele, was another instant classic in a small group of solo Wu-Tang efforts. Like Raekwon's only built for Cuban links and old dirty bastards returned to the 36 chambers. When it was finally released two years after Ghost left Rikers, it was the year 2000. Wu-Tang was busy cooking up their third record. And more than just music, Wu-Tang was building a brand. They were more than a hip-hop group. They were a business. Their clothing line, Wu-Wear, was grossing millions of dollars a year and outfitting their eclectic demographic with that now iconic yellow W symbol. By this point, however, in the year 2000, it wasn't just hip-hop heads and parole officers who were keeping tabs on Ghostface and Wu-Tang Clan. Not everyone looked at Wu-Tang and saw a legitimate business that was making good on the promise of the American dream. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, saw in Wu-Tang a front for corruption. Dirty money laundered through album sales and concert tickets and clothing lines. The ATF poured through Wu-Tang's past transgressions with a fine-tooth comb. Most of these guys had records. I'm not talking albums, I'm talking criminal rap sheets. Some of them, like Ghost, had even done time. And then, there was this thing with guns. Guns were everywhere. Like that unlicensed 357 Magnum behind Ghost's glove box. The ATF turned back the clock to 1991, Steubenville. Dennis Coles, AKA Ghostface Killer, gets shot. Bobby Diggs, AKA the RZA, goes on trial. They both leave, but part of them stays. The ATF drew a line from Ghost to the RZA to Wise God Allah, the manager of the hip hop group Kill Army who was gunned down by members of the Crips in 1997. The ATF knew that RZA was a known associate of Wise God. Hence, it wasn't a stretch to think that Rizzo was also known to the Steubenville Bloods, of which Wise God was a rumored member. And it wasn't just Steubenville. One month after Wise God Allah was shot dead, on December 30th, 1997, a man named Robert Johnson was jumped by two masked men in the St. George district of Staten Island. They shot him several times and left his mortal wounds bleeding out on the pavement. Robert Johnson was a known associate of a man named Daryl Hill, AKA Capadonna, a Staten Island native who, once upon a time, taught various Wu-Tang Clan members how to rhyme. This was way back in the day. When Wu-Tang formed, Cap happened to be serving his own stint at Rikers Island. Recently, however, he was welcomed into the Clan's fold as an honorary member. The ATF were interested in how Ghostface and the RZA and Capadonna and the entire Wu-Tang Clan tied into the cases of Wise God Allah and Robert Johnson. Not simply because they knew the departed. It wasn't a crime to know somebody. This was deeper than that. The ATF were interested first in the proximity of these two shootings. They happened a mere month apart. Perhaps a coincidence that two men died violent deaths in two different cities, two men who just so happen to have ties to members of one organization. The organization in question being a hip-hop group. 
The ATF were also interested in the police work conducted by detectives in Steubenville and Staten Island, specifically information collected about the weapons used in both crimes. It was determined that guns used in both shootings could be traced back to a single batch of guns that had been bought in Steubenville, a batch bought by known associates of Wu-Tang Clan. It didn't take the ATF long to string their story together. And that story went like this. Wu-Tang Clan, one of the biggest hip-hop groups on the planet, were, in reality, hiring friends to purchase weapons in Ohio, which were then transported to New York, where the group used them for their own protection. To the ATF, Wu-Tang Clan weren't just a collective of MCs and producers and artists. They were gunrunners. I'm Jake Brennan, and this episode of Disgraceland is to be continued. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roll up.